Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Sunday, and uh, take a look at the bio. Uh, this whole week, or I should say more specifically, um, my good friend Abe Gluck is uh, this week has yards there for his parents and is sponsoring. Uh, the bio and the and the parsha and the haftarah this week, so thank you very much. Aside from the other sponsorships during the year, as I said, this is dedicated to the memory of his parents. That Bichayim Eliezer Shalom Bebtubi Gedalia, his mom was Chaya Fega, Basrab Shmaya Glick. So um, the Neshamas should have not an Aliyah, Aliyos. It's a pair. The Neshamas should have a pair of Aliyos, uh, and thank you very much. Now, uh, it's funny, I, uh, what do you call it, I was not sure what to talk about, but uh, a couple weeks ago, I asked Ari Elbaum, you know, who's, who's uh, yard sites and so forth, is around, and he sent me a list, and I saw Shmuel Salanter, who was a famous rabbi of Yushalayim, but for one reason or another, I got sidetracked and I did this and I did that and the other thing, the third thing. I got a whole bunch of other people in there. But in the back of my mind, I said, when I'll have like a clearing, that'll be one I hope to do with Shmoslant, a very interesting person, 19th century. Uh, this morning, when I was coming back from Shaw, I thought to myself, you know, Shmoslant, He's the son of lover of Zondla Salanter, well, probably most people never heard of, or heard a little. And I don't know why, but my ATR got better at me, and I said, let's do that one. So here's, I'm going to do today, um, his father-in-law, and then maybe another time do a Shmuel Salanter. Or Zondla Salanter. Now, I realize I'm talking to American audience, you know, Salanter, Palanter, you know, they all sound the same. But believe it or not, they're all different individuals. <coughs> and... To the degree anybody's ever heard of this person, it's he's the Rebbe of Israel Salanter. <laughs> None of them are related, not not by blood. You know, they happen to live in a town called Salant, which is, I guess, in Lithuania, not too far from the coastline. <clears throat> and that's part of the story. Uh, I don't expect you know your your geography, but um, Salant is a town not too far away from. Uh, the big port of Memel, today called Klaipeda. That's where Israel Salanter is buried. And uh, that's part of the story. Now, somebody, we talking about somebody today who's not so well known. Unless you're a Musser freak and you've read the Tunis of Musser, you're into that stuff heavily. Perhaps I'm mistaken, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. Most people not to Rabbi Yosef Zundel of the town of Salant. Now, this is a literature story. Um, because it's the heart of Lithuania. And he lived an interesting, very interesting set of years. <clears throat> you can't trust what you read in the books and all the rest, right? By my calculations, he's born around 1780, and he died in 1865, 66. So he lived to be 85, 86 years old. <clears throat> and that's how I calculate it. Now, that means, and he's going to be a very unusual guy. That means that... Um, he was 17 years old when the Vilna Gaon died. You know, in other words, he's a contemporary to Vilna Gaon, the late first 15, 16, 17 years of his life, right? Let's say I'm off by year. It doesn't matter. Which is just interesting, because here you have somebody who will live a long life into a very different world in the 1860s, in Israel, as we'll see, but who didn't know the Vilna Gaon personally, because where he lives is far away from Salon to Vilna, it's about 300 miles. Um, I think. Uh, and he didn't have to go on personally, but he, he will know Chaim Velazhener. In fact, he'll be one of the first students of Chaim Velazhener when they start the Velazhener Yeshiva in the early 1800s. 
early 1800s. And in some respects, in some respects, you might even regard him as the Talmud Muvak of Rechaim Velazhar in some ways. Not exact, but in some ways. Now here I have to get a little more exact. <clears throat> you know, um, what's interesting when you do biographies is the uniqueness of each individual personality. Uh, there are Rabbanim and famous people in history who are all cut from the same cookie-cutter cloth. Pretty much like the father, pretty much like the son, like the brother, people at that time, the representatives of certain Tukufas. Which is normal. But then, you always run across the unusual guy who's not exactly like everybody else, but forges their own path. I'm talking about within, in this context, I'm talking about within Yiddishkeit. Make your own path. And sometimes you will attract followers and you'll become sort of like the founder of a path. In a certain way, this guy started the Tanua Samusar. I hate to use that expression because you know, it's a little bit deceiving, but I'll, I'll use it, right? Simply because the influence is also longer. So I'll explain what I mean. Our hero, is he born around 1780, that's when <clears throat> Lithuania was now part of the Russian Empire, used to be part of the Kingdom of Poland, Poland-Lithuania, and the ruling class in Lithuania were Polish. I know it sounds funny what I'm saying, but it's a complicated story. The Lithuanian nobility Polonized, regarded themselves as Polish. So in the first years of our hero, there's a lot of political tension going on. Um, 1790s sees the beginning of the 25-year war in Europe about the Napoleon and French Revolution and all of its avizrahut in the Russian-Polish um, but, you know, a Jew, if he wanted to, could live his life all with his own bubble, and that's what our hero did. And he, he obviously, hero-worshipped the Vilnagon. Okay, you can hear that. And <clears throat> he hero-worshipped <clears throat> um, uh, Belashner. The Imamish was one of the first guys in Belashen. <clears throat> and he picked up Der Der Halimud, which is not the, lim <clears throat> the Der Halimud of... Um, I'll use a word that I shouldn't use, a pilpul, right? That kind of certain type of lumdus. But rather, the old-fashioned, painstaking, Vilnagon style, which is you learn everything, you learn it very thoroughly. Right? In other words, Babli, Yushalm, Yichilda, Sivra, Sivri, all these obscure Midrashim, you learn the Tanakh very cold, you even learn Jewish history to the degree that they had that stuff at that time. Um, I've seen in places that he learned foreign languages. I don't, I don't know how he did that, but it's possible. Um, and uh, what can I tell you? He uh, picked up this derech, and <clears throat> it was very religious in his nature. Now, when I say religious, that's a term that can cover a lot of things. You could become a frumach and be a turnoff to people, and constantly look to criticize others and see the faults in them. Or you can be the other type, which is you look at the faults in yourself and got time to worry about somebody else's. And you tried, in your way, to do the dvekas, the kind of dvekas that they talk about in the Misselzi Sharm, which, as you know, was a favorite book in the Vilnagon types. Correct? The Misselzi Sharm, I'm not going to it now, was actually criticized in some Hasidic circles. They said, it's also to read the works of Ramchal, can you believe that? They consider him to be like a kaifer. But by the grove, in those guys, it's the opposite. It's Kurdish Kedoshim. And if you remember, in the Silsi Sharm, he has whole chapters about you should be dovuk by Hashem, thinking about Hashem 24-7, even when you're doing your worldly deeds, things like that, in the words about Kedusha. You and I read it, and it's kind of like a cliche. But... We're talking about a tekufa, or talking about a guy who took this stuff very seriously and took every word in Torah literature very, very seriously. So if he covers whole shas, plus Roshanah, Machram, this, that, and the other, and every aspect of it, any line you find in the Gemara, that's an interesting thing from his biography, any line you find in the Gemara, you know, you should sit on your right side, you should sit on your left side, he did it. You see? Um, and from what I've read... 
he took Tanakh very seriously. It's, it's the Gros style. And Reb Chaim Velashem was also like that. So that means when you're learning a Gemara, you're not learning it for the Lumdas. You're learning um, but not in the um, easy way, which is you just learn up the Gemara, and then let's say, for example, the Rambam, the Torah, and the Shulchan Arch, basic knows the Kalim, and you're pretty good. Believe me, somebody can do that, it's pretty good. <laughs> somebody can do that, it's pretty good. But rather, you ma'ayin in every source, very thoroughly. So yes, you learn the Beis Yosef, but then the Gemara is the Beis Yosef quotes. You look at each and every Gemara, and on that Gemara you look at every, you know, Rishon and Achron, and he developed his own, it's famous, he developed his own way of learning, which is, which I myself thought of, you know, not that I'm singing it, which is to remember that the Talmud is a book written by judges. The Tanoim Amraim were judicial people. And so when they talk about cases, it's always always from the point of view of the judge. You know, Shnai Mochzim Batalis. You know, Zeran Mimitsasiyah. From the point of view of the judge, I don't know, I'm sitting here and they come in, two guys holding on to a talus, you see? And you try to, um, what's the right word, concretize every case, whether in the, any part of Shulchan Aruch or Kachim or Tyrus, anything like that. And you, by concretizing it and, and, and forming a mental image, you have a better understanding of what it is. And if you have any issues, you work on it, work on it, work until you get it clear. I hope I haven't confused you. But this is a major element they talk about in his biography. Um, in fact, the only real biography of Israel Salanter, which is really made up of a collection of earlier memories, is in the beginning of the Tunus Musar. Because he's interested in Rizondo Salanter because he's the Rebbe of the inspiration of Israel Salanter. And of course, the Tunus Musar is built around Israel Salanter and his influence. Now, having said that, um, and I know where he got most of those stories from. They're all from earlier places. He collected them. It's very fascinating, by the way, that um, there are many biographies which are also out there. Among the most interesting <laughs> is the one written by the least from guy around 120 years ago. It's online somewhere. There's also out there. I forget the guy's name, Friedlander or something like that. There's a Moscow. And he's writing there, he says, I want to tell you about Yisrael Salanter and his teacher, because since the Haskalah has triumphed, people are going to forget that there ever was a guy named Yisrael Salanter. Therefore, I just want to preserve some of his memory. Isn't that funny? Today, things look a little bit different. <laughs> Nobody remembers the Maskilin, and there are a million people that enter Yisrael Salanter, including, by the way, the former conservative. But here I'm talking about the Rebbe. That's the wrong word, the role model. So our hero learns uh, with Rechaim Voloshner and in the yeshiva. And he gets married. He moves back to town, to his own town, to Salant. And from time to time, the same way Rechaim Voloshner would go and hang around with the Vilna Gong, so this guy would go around and hang around with uh, Rechaim Voloshner. Although, if you look at the map, they're talking about hundreds of miles a journey. Okay? But the style of Rechaim Voloshner is exactly what I said, which is, that's Voloshin at its most famous. You do Kola Torah Kula, you do the entire Sugya from beginning to end, and the point is not to make a big Kiddush or something like that. That will come on its own. But rather, you go through every Rishon, every Achron, or I shouldn't say every Achron, every Rishon, important Achronin. You work out every line, every Svara. You know, it's a, it's, it's a Vodas Perach. On the other hand, then you have sound knowledge. Okay? Then you have sound knowledge. And the lumdus is, is, is emerging out of the sweeping bikiyas, which requires, therefore, not only a lot of time for the learning, but you have to chazer, 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 chazer. And that's what they did. So I'm taking it back to a different kufa. Now, a guy like our hero would have been a prime candidate to be a big rabbi somewhere of a town. That was the ostensible purpose of the founding of the Velazhin Yeshiva, to raise the level of the candidates for the rabbi, there should be to, to, people that the, the rabbonim of communities should be people who have command of shas. And when I say shas, I mean in the broad sense. 
the Bible you shall make Bilta Mabish this that and the other. Yep, broad sense. And so if you raise the standards, Rukhaim Balajan felt that will save Claudius Rob. He wasn't exactly right about that, but that's what he felt. However, um it's clear that our hero had a Natiya to what I would call Hasidus. I don't mean Hasidus in the Hasidism sense, but precious of Hasidus, your piety. And therefore, for these reasons, I guess his feeling is the main thing I have to do is work on myself. The work on myself. Which is a certain way of looking at things. You know, a person could say like this, if I work on myself, I'll never help anybody else. But that's how he looked at it. It's clear to me. And therefore, he never would accept a position as a rover or a dying or anything like that. Even though he learned up a storm. And just the fact that he was a Talmud Chaim Velozha would a leading Talmud Chaim Velozha would get him a job. He didn't want it. And so, as in the old school, he said, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, support myself. And so, he became basically a businessman. But, you know, those type of businessmen that we're talking about, they put 10% of the time into business, 90% of the time into the learning. And when I say the learning, I tell you, get, I mean the whole learning. So, you take the Agatha very seriously, and you take all those most are one-liners that you find in shots here and there. Well, you very seriously. You get it? The idea of taking everything you find, everything in the literature, very seriously, that's a characteristic of our hero. So if the Gemara says, a person shouldn't do this and this and that, or a person should always try to do this, instead of what you and I say, it's like, hey, it's a Tova Kamashmalon, or just it's telling you a piety or something like that. Uh, he, took it, he, he really tried to live his life by those words. Now, on the other hand, he clearly was not just a botlin who just sits in base marriage all day and learning, even though he could do that, because I'll tell you again, he was a businessman, and for a while a successful businessman. So what does that tell you? In order to be successful in business, you have to have your, your feet on the ground. Okay? Which is why um, Israel Salanter later on famously eulogizes him as a Sulamus of Arts of Rosh Magia which, to my mind, means he worked for a living. He was a Sulem Mutsavartsov, but he's one of those guys, rare individuals, who, Rosham Agishamayma, meaning that, like the Mesilis Sharm says, he can be holding in Dvekas and those kind of things, even when he's working. Now, what does it mean to work for a living? He lived in Salant. It's 35 miles away from the port city, from Memel, which was just over the border in Prussia. Okay, Memel which today is called Klaipeda. That's where Israel Santa is buried. It's 35 miles away. So it's, I, I, I'm telling you this, because history really does matter a lot. The dates, the places, and the geography. People don't don't cop that. But, I mean, I can't expect them to. But it is a fact. And therefore, the border of Prussia or Germany is very close to where you live, 35 miles. And therefore, what you do is import-export. You know, for example... You schlep uh, uh, food from the Lithuania part to the Prussia part, and you bring back, you know, manufactured goods, things like that. I'm just trying to show you real life. So in a situation like that, you had to be on your toes, and you had to be Zrezis, right? Yeah, and make a living. They tell stories. There's so many stories about them, it's hard to tell which ones are real, which ones are not, because people like this become legendary figures. And with a guy like that, it is possible that it's true. You know, he really was different. Um, and the truth of most of they have a thing, you know, he was successful in business, but he had a kid that died, so he dobbed that he should get poor and he should have children that should live. You know, I don't know. But the bottom line is, he worked successfully as a business person. However, um, when he made enough money to pay bills, he would stop working. See, this is kind of bitochen, get it? You look at Masilzi Sharm and these other books, they talk about bitochen. And you know, is it a cliche or do you take it literally? Once I have enough parnos in the bank, now I can devote myself to learning. Uh, and to tick and amidas. Um, what happens when the money runs out? Hashem will provide. In other words, not that Hashem will provide that the money will drop into my lap. I'll get up and I'll work again and make some more money. It's a, it's a certain way of thinking. Right?
And what's really interesting about him is that he adopted um, this Clark Kent Superman thing, like the Balshemto, which is that, I mean, he lived where he lived. People knew who he was, but he never dressed like a rogue. It's famous. He didn't wear the outfit, which would have commanded a lot of respect in that part of the world. The opposite, he dressed like a schlump. Uh, I shouldn't use the word schlump because I'm sure he's very neat. You know, Sam, he's supposed to be very neat. But you know, very plain clothes, like a poor person. Um, he hung around the poor people. He didn't you know, hang around the elites. And really, when he was in business trips, you know, he looked like a bum. By that I mean somebody lower classes. Which is why there are many stories that they tell uh, about his adventures or misadventures on his business trips. The most famous of which, which has been repeated again and again, is the cutest, and that is that he went on a trip, a business trip from Salon to uh, or wherever he was, to Memel, to the port city, which is in Germany. And he went with a bunch of guys. They didn't know who he was. And there were a bunch of Heverlates in him. No, there's other business guys who are lightheaded fellas. You know, from dudes. A bunch of jerks, you know. And he looked like a bum and a half. And he didn't talk to anybody. Because, you know, that's a din. Shouldn't just talk to anybody. And second of all, it's probably Lush and Hart. So anyway... So he looked like a lowlife, and they made fun of him. And when they came to the Malone, to the inn, he slept on a bench instead of getting a room. He could have afforded a room, but he wanted to live a life of preachers. You know, they didn't cop that. And so they took him to be a jerk, and to just have some fun at his expense, uh, they lit a fire to his beard. Get it? Uh, now, I don't think they intended to incinerate him, they probably lit, as I understand, lit a fire to his beard. He should wake up and scream, and then they'll blow it out, and ha, 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 a good time was had by all. And when they lit the fire, after he fell asleep, his beard, he woke up, and he said, oh, do more. Odmat, yeah, keep it up. Because from his cheshman, it's a Musa cheshman, the more I'm embarrassed in Olam Hazen, the better it is for me in Olam Abba. Nobody operates like that. And I'm sure that was totally out of their universe of thinking. No, who's like that? Two more. But it like freaked him out. Like, who is this guy? But since he conducted himself like a like a Clark Kent, so they didn't think about it. And the story, of course, is later on on some occasion, they saw him talking to a Hushel guy, and they said, who is this bum talking to a Hushel guy? And he said, that's not a bum, that's the famous Zondas Lanter, blah, blah, blah. And he said, oh my God, <laughs> you know. Then they felt like a piece of dirt, which they were. And they went over to apologize, you know. And, of course, he said, I forgive you on the condition you never do this to anybody else. Don't do this to anybody else. You see? Because he doesn't mind it. But somebody else, you can't do it. So that's a very typical story of who he was. And the Nister side is what comes out in that story. And that's true of many other mices like that. So, like I say, even if half of them are true, it brings out the point. And so here you have somebody that year after year is putting a lot of time into learning. Also a lot of time taking very seriously the muster stuff. So I'll tell you again. These type of people, um, after they made a certain amount of money that could cover the expenses. I'll just give an example. Uh, I'm going to use American example. Right, just off the top of my head. Suppose a guy today... I don't know. I mean, it depends on the size of your family, of course. But I'm trying to put it in terms of that time. Let's say a guy like this did business and he made, I don't know, $180,000. He has kids in school, he's got to pay tuitions. And that much money, if you follow what I'm saying, after all the tuitions and all the taxes and everything else, uh, it's a good amount of money. But you see what I'm saying. Then the guy says, okay, dumb, I'm taken care of. Now I'm going to drop business. I'm not going to do any work. I'm going to spend the rest of the time in Colel, you know, in learning. When the money runs out, you know, my family, my creditors will tell me, and I'll do it again. That's a, it's a, a non-Goshmiistic way of doing Goshmias. Okay? This is old, old school. 
And uh, so he did that. And uh, the point I wanted to make was that uh, his reputation, you know, got out there. When he is during that time when he's not at work, see, he would do what people used to do in the old days, do parish or precious. And precious means you leave your family, you go out in the, to a small village in the countryside where there's maybe a minion and you hang around the shoal where nobody's there all day long and you, you know, and you learn and you do musser. You understand? He's the one who invented what they call the musser behispilus, in which, you know, he would take every pusik and mishle and every chazal that has to do with musser and say it over and over again, loud and loud. Which, of course, became, as we all know, the hallmark of his student of Israel Salanter, the Musterbis Pilots. But he's the one who invented it. And he invented it because he was a very thoughtful person and was an original thinker. And that's why he's interesting. And he came up with the shtick on his own. In other words, just like Rabbi Chaim Kodyevsky had, you know, his chayvis, uh, as they call it. So this guy had his. And he also was always Matakis Aces in his mind, you know, had to improve himself, his family, the people around him, and that kind of thing. And he had a lot of common sense. One of the nicest stories they have is where this is a guy, I'll, I'll read it to you. This is, it's it's a it's very, very interesting, at least to me. And it goes to show you that he's very thoughtful, even though he spent all of his time, you know, uh, not as an educator or anything like that, but he could when he wanted. Uh, here it is. This is not long. His town, in Salon, they had a bunch of Talmud Chacham, because the Rob was a famous guy who was a Rebbe of Yisrael Salanter, Tuyash Breidim, and um, they had a circle of Lamdanim. This is the way it was in Lithuania. Notice that people didn't know much, but you had a certain elite in each town, or many towns. So this guy showed up, okay? Anam Gadam Ma'ob, Talmudim, he's a Bakim in Babel Yushami, okay, listen to that. They're very sharp. I will be some But he was possessed of a mind and a personality which was crooked and pulpalistic. Meaning, he's always got to say, what you're saying is wrong, and try to create his own shot, even if it's false. So because he was so brilliant, he never learned anything correctly. And he certainly didn't understand <clears throat> what our hero was into and what the Vilna Gona Chaim were into, which is called Omek Hapshat. Omek Hapshat, which is not easy. Now, Tzvi Hirsch the rabbi of the town, the Rav, seeing that this guy is obviously brilliant, but flawed, he tried to unflaw him and show him the right way to learn. But the guy was so arrogant, he wouldn't accept anybody over him. And always insisted that he's right. So the rabbi of the town more or less gave up and turned to our hero, Riosa Zondo Salanter. And he said like this, I know, you know, you, you, you can cut the, the Clark Kent act with me. I know really you're very a sound, uh, pedagogically. So you deal with this guy. What should I do with him? And you resumed He said, there's a real smart boy, boy, from another town as the Eloy, who's learning in the town now, and let him go and learn with this guy. As a matter of fact, the young boy should get a Bechina from this guy. Because the Rizundo figured like this, the main problem with this uh, brilliant, uh, uh, arrogant guy. He loves to win. 
And since he regards everybody else as garnished compared to him, so he won't listen to them. But if he talks in learning and debates with a young boy who's no threat and he's nice, so there won't be a desire, you know, a guy like that, to be menaseh, to defeat the uh, young boy because he's only a little boy. Okay? And little by little, and the young boy, because he's learning soundly, so he will eventually penetrate into the mind of the older guy, to get into his heart, and show him what he's lacking, in other words, it's a case where you can't tell him straight up, but if you maneuver him in a situation, he will become enlightened on his own. Which is, of course, the highest level of mustard. I guess we all want. If you have a problem, if I go scream at you or criticize you, usually it doesn't work. The highest level, the only successful level, is to get you to realize. You see what I'm saying? Like I said the other day, if you're smoking, and I'm trying to tell you not to smoke, if I say, oh, you're an idiot, or it's going to give you cancer, or this, that, and the other, it's a turnoff. What I can do, perhaps, is if I'm successful, is here, I'll show you a website or something like that and study it for yourself. Study the medical consequence for yourself. Talk to your own doctor or whatever. In other words, with the hope that at the end of the process, the guy will say, ooh, maybe it's a bad idea. So that's called enlightenment. I didn't push you to do it. I got you to see that for you it's a good thing to do. Uh, it's very interesting if you think about it. Not many educators or rebbies are, are capable of doing that. And that's a very high level. Usually they try to guide the kid or push the kid or something like that. They get the kid to see the truth on its own, or the shot and gemari on its own. That is a, a very sound mechanic. That's a, that's a very uh, stark, uh, that, that's a very good role model. I don't say too often. You know what I'm saying? Not that I'm spoon-fitting you or telling you the right way. To train you in a way of thought, analysis, that you get to see yourself where you were wrong. And a light go, light bulb goes off. That's a very high level. So that means he was naturally a, uh, a mechanach. But as I said before, he's living the life of Clark Kent. And that's what he wanted. Now, uh, at times he lived in poverty. is all these stories. The interesting thing goes like this. Um, this is true till he reaches his 50s. In his 50s, he decided to make Aliyah, which is most unusual in the 1830s. Now, I don't see the biographers try to explain why at this particular point he wants to make Aliyah. But to me, it's Pasha. As I've said before, and people don't talk about it too much nowadays, there was a big belief at that time in the Litvish Shavelt that the Mashiach is coming in the year 1840. Right? Mashiach is coming in the year 1840. They were just wrong, that's all. I think the Grolls are held that way. And that's one of the reasons, not the only reason, that the Talmudim and Vilna Gon, little by little, start moving to Palestine around 1800, 1790s, 1800, early 1800s. There's a number of reasons, but part of it, they want to be there when Mashiach is coming, which in their calculations, you know, they figured 1840. Now, they didn't bet the farm on it. You know, they didn't say this is for sure happening. But there was a pretty strong feeling about that. The person I'm talking about is a Talmud of the Talmud of Grah. He was a close Talmud of Chaim Belajaner. He was a contemporary of Vilna We forget, perhaps that a major part of the Vilna Gaon's teachings is the importance of Eretz Yisrael. Right? Everybody knows the girl trying to go himself in this, that, and the other. It's not a small part of who the Vilna Gaon was. It's not all of it. He wasn't a Zionist in the, excuse me, Herzl sense, but he was a Zionist in the sense of it's very important to, to move to Israel. And if you're a guy like our hero, now, there is a Gemara that says, whoever lives outside of Eretz Yisrael, Kamisha Eloha. Now, 
you and I take that as rhetorical. I told you, this guy didn't take anything as rhetorical. Every Chazal, he seems to take it very seriously. You understand? Very seriously. And not simply, oh, it's a Musar Vart. Oh, it's like a Lamaisa Vart. Now, why he waited till his 50s, I don't know. Because um, he wasn't rich. Okay? person like I'm talking about could have been rich because he could have applied his intense uh, personality and ability to concentrate and great intelligence on amassing money. There's no question about that. Right? And he was a person who was capable of pulling off successful business deals. So he, had he gone that route, you know, he could be almost as rich as the guys in Lakewood. But that's not who he was. For whatever reason, he decided to make Aliyah, and he did. This is, you might say, so to speak, 10 or 20 years too early, <clears throat> because it was just before the new inventions that would greatly facilitate making Aliyah. He went in the late 1830s, that's just before the railroads. You understand? If he would wait 10, 15 years, could have gotten on a on a train somewhere in Lithuania and gone choo-choo all the way down to the Mediterranean and then taken what you call a steamboat and pretty darn quick you end up in Palestine. He went before that. And uh, it was hard. In addition to which, as I mentioned here in the past, maybe when I did Nissenbeck, uh, I don't expect you to know the history of Turkish Palestine, but suffice it to say that the years 1830 to 1840, 1841, were a war zone. Palestine was a war zone between um, the Sultan of Turkey on the one hand and Mehmet Ali, the ruler of Egypt, on the other. And the Sultan at that time was not an impressive person. And Mehmet Ali, who is a very interesting character, was an Albanian Muslim who took over and became the king of Egypt. Or not the king, but de facto the king. And modernized the country and built up a big army and so forth. He was the first Muslim to really Europeanize. And his son was Ibrahim Pasha, who was a great general. And he defeated and conquered Palestine and Syria from the Turks. And if the European powers hadn't intervened, they could have knocked out the Ottoman Empire and taken over for themselves. Quite a story. Um, and therefore, Eretz Yisrael itself, Palestine, was a war zone between two different sets of armies. And the civilians got killed, and the Jews got screwed on both ends. And said, what happened? You know, either from the Arab side, or from the Turkish side, or from the Egyptian side. It is what it is. And so, um, that's the wrong time to make Aliyah. But he didn't anyway. So in other words, he lived in his own world. Didn't care about international events. In the end, what happened was that the great powers of Europe forced the Egyptians to retreat and give it all back to Turkey. That's happened in 1840, 1841. That's Palmerston, the famous British prime minister, uh, foreign minister, right? who, by the way, was a great friend of the Jews. So he ended up in Eretz Yisrael. Now, listen to this. He lived a life of incognito, Clark Kent. Not exactly. What I mean by that is the word gets out among those who know. And so... The big Rob Bonham in Lithuania and place like that, they knew who he was. They knew he has this weird shtick of Clark Kent. Right? Really, he could be Superman easily. But he's not choosing to do that. But the guy is a Yodeo Kalatar Kula. And therefore, when he wanted to make Aliyah, somehow or other, they always write this in the biographies, that in Amsterdam, at the headquarters of the Frumbies, who ran the old Yisha of the Laren brothers, who I did in the past, um, they said, a guy's moving to Eretz Yisrael who's, who's not a Talmud Chacham, he's a Talmud Chacham, a biggie, a gong. And interestingly, they never had anybody of that stature there at that time. Not somebody that big. Even though you had the Pasa Shochan, I mean, you did have some Chasha Talmud Chacham in Eretz Yisrael, I'm talking about Ashkenazi, but apparently he was considered in a different league. So, when he's making Aliyah, he got help, obviously, from the committee in Amsterdam, so they basically said like this, listen, um, you can't hide your light under a bushel anymore. If you move to Eretz Yisrael, we're happy to help you. But then you have to come out and be Superman. Uh, you have to assume a, a, a responsible role. 
because that's what the yeshiva and especially the Jewish community in Yerushalayim needs. And he said, okay. So notice he wasn't committed to the living uh, Clark Kent. It's just that in Lithuania, the situation, the way he touched it up, was one where that's the best way to do his Avodah Hashem. But now in his 50s, because if he's born in 1780s, I'm talking about the 1830s, 50s, so life takes a turn, and now he's coming out of the closet. And he moved to Yerushalayim with his family, and um, he said, uh, I don't want to take any official position, but de facto, I'll do whatever is necessary for me. And they all saw that this guy who showed up is a gigantic Talmud Chacha, right? And again, he had a graduate of Elijah Yeshiva, and all the rest of it. And so, for the Litvaks that were in Yerushalayim, a small number who are trying to organize themselves, he's like the great white hope, man on the white horse. Because they said like this, until now, we didn't have any heavy-duty big people, and for various reasons, the Sephardim ruled the show. Many people don't understand why that is. It had to do with a debt that had been run up in the 1700s that the Ashkenazim never paid off. And therefore, when they came to Islam, they had to pretend to be Sephardim. But the long and the short of it is that there was a Jewish Kehillah in Yerushalayim, but recognized by the government was only the Sephardim. You understand what I'm saying? This is the Turkish Empire. I just did this in a lecture series, by the way. Let's say that um, two Jews who are from have a argument in business, a Choshen Mishpat argument. And you go to a basin in the Turkish Empire, which is a recognized government, recognized basin. And let's say they're arguing over $20,000. Reuven versus Shimon. And let's say the Basin finds for Reuven. Under normal circumstances, the Turkish government, the police and all the rest of it, will then make sure that, um, that Shimon pays him the 20 grand. You get what I'm saying? The Jewish court issued the ruling. Since it's a government-recognized court, uh, it has backing of the state. Suppose the court says that so-and-so is divorced, or not divorced, the government will act accordingly. This is the way it was in the Turkish Empire for centuries. The thing is, the Jews in the Turkish Empire were Sephardim. And therefore, there's no Ashkenazic basins over there. I'm just trying to be as plain as I can for you listening on the podcast. So let's say, for example, um, two Ashkenazi Jews had an argument over $20,000 which they didn't have that kind of money at that time. And he went to an Ashkenazi court. It's a Zavlaw, get it? That's what you're doing. No, it's an arbitration court. Yeah, you know, they agree to go to these three rabbis or whatever, two, whatever they agree to. And if you're from, you'll listen to the basin. If you're not from, you won't. The government won't back you up because you're not a recognized court. Only the Spartan have a recognized court. It's interesting. And believe you me, when it comes to money, nobody's from. And that's how it goes. And so, if you were two Ashkenazi guys, and you wanted to get like a, a, a real sock that will be backed by the police, you went to the Sephardi court. The Ashkenazi didn't like this, and they were always scheming. Um, they were always scheming, one way or another, to get their own recognition for their own basis. Now, I'm telling you right now, it never happened. Isn't that interesting? It never happened. All throughout, down to the First World War, um, whenever there was uh, uh, an attempt on the part of Ashkenazim to set up a basin that would be recognized by the government the way the Sephardi was, it didn't happen. Only when the British took over after the First World War did you get, for the first time, a government-recognized Thing from the uh, from the British government, that's Rav Cook. He set up the Rabbanut, and when he set up the Rabbanut, they set up Ashkenaz and Sephard. So both were recognized by the British government. It wasn't exactly the same thing as under the Turks, but substantially it was. And that's the basis, by the way, 
for the rabbinate in Israel today that is recognized by the government. It's the only place in the world. Um, which is interesting. So when our hero shows up in 1838, 39, whatever it was, they said, now at least we have somebody could could organize a basin that everybody will agree in terms, if not of, of institutional authority, certainly in terms of charismatic authority, is led by a God And it was true. Because now, Clark King came out of Superman. There's a guy that knows Kala Tarakula. He knows Halakha Lamaisa, because I told you, he's learning the Vilnagon style. Everything should be Asukish Maisa, leave it up. He's very, totally controlled all the parts of the Shulchan Aruch, all Halakha. And he also, not surprisingly, was a big Chacham of Bikeah. And therefore, you know, issued the Psak in the right way. Because, you know, it's applying the law, especially in these kind of cases, requires chachma, not just knowledge. And everybody says he had the big chachma. So from now on, begins the rise, really, of the Ashkenazim, slowly but surely, to a point where they'll become the dominant ones, even though the Turkish government only recognizes the Spartan. I hope I haven't complicated too much. But that's the historical role that our hero plays. Now, what's interesting is he didn't come because he wanted to take over. He's taking this job because he's asked to and there's nobody else there. And as a from Jew, you want to be misakin as much as possible. The Kehillah, the, the Amud HaMishpat, the whole process of Bez and all the rest of it, the community definitely needs leadership. And so if that's the case, it helps apply the leadership. But he wasn't looking for the title. He wouldn't take any title. And he certainly wouldn't take a penny. And so here you have the beginnings of the only way you get real rabbinical leadership in the charismatic sense, which is that there's no money involved. He really was the type of guy that didn't take a penny. There aren't too many like that. Didn't take a penny. Mind you, money passed through his hands. People from abroad would send money to disperse, but nothing sticks to his hands. If you have a reputation like that, which is not so easy, then, you know, people can't say nothing about you. Because it all comes down to gelt, gelt, gelt. And if you can show yourself to be really the real thing when it comes to gelt, 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 then in economy, then you're right. Like then, then, then you have it. Because uh, everything else is corrupted by the money. That's how it goes. Now, what's interesting is, his son-in-law was a Shmuel Salanter. In other words, that's a story by itself. Maybe I should save it for another time. But I'll give it to you the basics. That there was this young guy who was an Eloy, Shmuel, whatever his name was, and he got married as people did in those days at a very young age. It didn't work out. And they got divorced. You can't blame people. You know, you marry off two kids at the age of 12, 13. You can't say later on if the marriage fails at the age of 15, 16, it's his fault or her fault. It's the system's fault, you know. They're too young. You don't know what you're dealing with. Whatever the case is, he got divorced. Uh, and the question was, who will he remarry? And, you know, he was a very lofty uh, personality himself. So most lofty wouldn't get married to his wife, got Remarried, that's a class act. And they offered him a lot of shadikum with money. And by the time the story's over, he married the daughter of our hero who had no money. Okay? And, uh, again, skipping all the adventures, within two or three years of the Aliyah of the father-in-law, the son-in-law came to Yerushalayim. Therefore, they made quite a team. Father and son-in-law for 25 years were in Yerushalayim. Uh, I think the father-in-law arranged that his son-in-law should be the Av Basin or something like that. Although the son-in-law also is famous, wouldn't take a penny. I tell you, it's uh, these, this is a different type of people over here. They prefer to live lives of poverty. Um, it's unusual. Like, are you living, you know, that kind of thing. This is what they wanted. So, they, in other words, the Kesef shouldn't have any shlita by them at all. And they now began as I say, the Superman period of his life, 
which would be the last third. Because until the 50s, he was a Clark Kent. And then for the 60s, 70s, and 80s, as a Superman. In the sense, now people know in Yerushalayim is this big guy, Zundel Salanter, who was big back in Europe, and now you can see his. And they proceeded to spend the next 25 years while he was still alive trying to organize a Kehill in Yerushalayim in the European sense, an Ashkenazi Kehill. Here you have a very interesting historical process because in a town like Salant was probably a thousand Jews, maybe less. That's typical of that time. In Yerushalayim, when it came, it was 4,000 Jews. And over the next 25 years, came eight was, was doubled to 8,000. So by the standards of Europe, at that time, that's a big community. Moreover, in Yerushalayim, you got Jews from all over the world. So you didn't have any homogeneity like you had back in Lithuania or Hungary or wherever. And, even Litvish-wise, we have people from different elements. From northern Lithuania, from Belarus, from this place, that place. And they're all, you know, fighting with each other. You get it? Because they weren't from the same towns and the same areas. They were Vilna Gronix, generally speaking. <coughs> but not really. No, some were, some weren't. I don't want to get too detailed on this. And some came because of messianic expectations, other came for other reasons. <coughs> and you know, it's very hard to get ten Jews to agree on anything. <coughs> and yet, here you are, in the 1840s, and they can see the Yerushalayim is slowly building up. And you can see every year the Jewish community is increasing. So is the Gaisha community. So Palestine's in a mode of expansion. And you need, at least the way they were thinking, to create the institutions of Gail, a Chavar Kedisha. <coughs> Most interestingly, a, um, a day school. Isn't that interesting? This was the big project of father-in-law and son-in-law, Rav Zundel Salanter and Shul Salant, which I'm not, you're going to laugh now, which was considered a radical left-wing, <coughs> excuse me, radical left-wing deviation by the from frummies. I love this. According to them, right, they were nuts. The from from frummies said, Rav Zundel Salanter is not a from guy. <laughs> Rav Shmuel Salanter also. Because they want to deviate from the past. What do I mean with deviate from the past? <coughs> a from day school. What's a from day school? Zero English. Let's get, let's get that straight. Zero English. So what's what's controversial? The old way, they said, there's, every, there's no schools. Every family hires its own Muhammad. The guy teaches a bunch of kids, regardless of age or whatever. The parents can pull the kid whenever they want. And... It's chaotic. It's hot plop. And that's the, that's the Derech Yisrael Saba. Here comes two guys from Lithuania. So guess, Maybe we should have something called a school. Schools have shot kindergarten is for this age. First grade is for that age. You know, second grade is for the next age. And there should be an appropriate curriculum for the first grade. There should be a slightly different curriculum for the second grade. And then for the third and fourth up to high school. I'm talking about Limuni Kodesh. And he said, what do you mean different curriculums? All You're talking like Gaian. And so it was a whole fight. It's unbelievable to make what came Eitz Chaim, which today is a bastion of the Frum. To make Eitz Chaim, it was considered by the opponents to be an anti-Frum move. Like the guy was trying to introduce a missionary or something like that. This is the kind of nuts you're dealing with. And so you can't... Uh, let's put it this way. So he had his hands full trying to build up a, what I would call a day school, call it Yeshiva Ketana, whatever you want to call it, and up hopefully to higher level, eventually the Eitz Chaim Yeshiva, you know, Yeshiva Gedoah. There should be an organized chinuch system over there. I don't think he had anything for girls. That was a little bit too out of the part. Maybe I'm wrong. As I recall, they have anything for girls. That was going too far. But, to, but you can imagine what I'm talking about. If for the boys it's called too far, to have something called third grade and fourth grade. You see? This is the school later on, I live in, was the, with the, with the Mashkiach, you know? And, um, so to build that, to build Chavar Kadisha, 
he started the mayor Balanese that should have a centralized uh, tzedakah to come in to help the poor families, things like this. And it so happens that this was the beginning. Now, if you're very from, you'll say, Tzadik Balayir, you know, good luck shows up. I would say with his coming, 1830, 1840, and then his son-in-law begins the modern rise of Jerusalem as a Jewish center. Really. When things very slowly come together, unfortunately, constantly handicapped by Mechlekes, um, the son-in-law would face a lot more Mechlekes than the father-in-law, but the father-in-law had plenty. We have letters from him, which he's always trying, saying, and um, he really worked to try to create the institutions of a community. I'll say it again, Yerushalayim was the beginning of a population boom. And you know, from a few thousand, it went to 8,000, eventually to 12,000, and so on and so forth. It goes up and down because there were a lot of plagues and things. A lot of people died in the plagues. And our hero died in the plague. He was there for 25 years, 26 years, working all the time, living in a in a hut, you know. I told you again, a complete rejection of Gashmias. But that wasn't good enough for some people, you know. And they considered him, you know, like... These new ideas you're bringing in are dangerous ideas. Now, I'm going to talk about his death. He died from bad water. Let me find it over here. Listen to this. I'm reading this now, the history site. During the 1850s, the water supply to Jerusalem was very poor. Despite attempts by the Turkish administration to repair the ancient conduit... <coughs> In Aina Rub and Talmud's pools. This, in other words, how do you get your drinking water? The stone pipes, which would be good, you know, if you bring it from the original source by stone pipes, it's clean, were regularly sabotaged by the Arab farmers who earned a living selling water, which they brought in filthy animal skin bags from Ain Rogel and from the Gihon Spring. So it's a classic case where the guy's trying to burn down Amazon, you know? You're hurting my Parnassa. The Arabs sold the evil-tasting and foul-swelling water at a high price. This is how Jews lived for centuries, my friends. You don't know what it's like to live in these areas with the mercy of these guys who jack up the price. You have to understand how bad the water was in so many places around the world. The water supply was lakoi in so many places, which is why... People drank wine, not because they were winos or booze addicts or anything like this. It's the only safe water, liquid. You see, they lived lived on wine. This is really the reason you read in this forum about Jews having trouble with, you know, stamieno and this and that and the other. It's not stamina developed, right? You couldn't use the water, okay? The water supply depended mainly on the collected rainwater of cisterns dug near or even under the houses. Now, I can tell you this before the British came. And so there were dead animals and mosquitoes and all this other kind of junk in there. It's unbelievable, you know, what was going on in terms of the dirty water in Yerushalayim. And so obviously, nobody can eat anything without boiling it. There was no sewage system. This water was only, let me think now, there were a thousand cisterns in the 1860s. This water was only fit for drinking as long as it wasn't contaminated by sewage. That would probably be the rainwater, contaminated by the sewage. However, there was no sewage system in Yerushalayim. And the sewage ran into the street, seeping into the wells. Oh my God. The pollution of the drinking water in Yerushalayim, which, let's put it this way, you had to make sure you don't touch any water until you boil it. And then you boil it again, right? Based on what I'm saying. So people sometimes were lax on the boiling. And my friends, this is called cholera. This is how all the magafas hit Yerushalayim. And the rest of it is all during these years. Okay, uh, the Turks were never able to put it together until guess who paid out of his pocket, bought off the Arab farmers, bought off the Arab farmers, and then paid for a good sewage system. I mean, a good water system in Jerusalem to help the Jews as Montefiore. Okay. Um, oh, my second. I'm almost out. Hold on for a second. I had to switch tapes. Um, 
this is why he had all this trouble with water, and that's why he had all these epidemics. So Montefiore, um, and who, who could afford anything, he made it his business to fix this, but not in time for our hero, because Ramzun de Salander died from the cholera from one of these epidemics in 1865 or 66. He was an old man anyway. Um, although he was tough, as far as I can see, you know, he had a good health. But, um, you know, those type of people are stark. You want to know something? This is so typical. It says, whoever walks Dalit Amos Eretz Yisrael is like Kabbalah Shekhinah, whatever it says. Every day he would walk another Dalit Amos in Eretz Yisrael. You, you, you know what I'm saying? In other words, let's say I live in my house. So one day I walk four Amos past my house. The next day I walk eight Amos, you know, another four Amos. Because now I'm a kind of my, I'm Dalit Amos. Next day, 12 Amas. Next day, 16 Amas. And eventually he left the city and then he went another direction. I'm telling you, you know, he took all these things seriously. So a guy like that is a strong constitution. Because think what it's like walking up and down in Israel, especially when it wasn't paved. But the cholera can take you down. This is probably what killed Ramchal, I suppose. You know, the bad water. And things like this we take for granted. In America, I imagine where you are, I don't know who I'm talking to, in America, you have good water. Yeah, I live in Baltimore. You can drink the tap water. And even so, people don't do it. They all buy fancy bottles. You know what I'm saying? So in other words, we're sensitized nowadays to the importance of clean water. Not in the 19th century. It, it wasn't push it at all. And that's why our ancestors and ancestors and ancestors stuck to wine. Because, you know, con compared to what I'm talking about, the wine is, is healthy. You see? So it wasn't that in the Middle Ages that people, you know, were boozers. It was, that's the only thing you can you can trust. Uh, so he went down in a in a sad way, uh, because he shouldn't have died in the plague, but he did. And uh, meanwhile, he left behind the following. When Yisrael Salanter, Yisrael Salanter, was young, he was learning with the rabbi in Salon. He wasn't from Salon, but he went there to learn with the rabbi there, three hush brother. And <clears throat> like the Baal Shem Tov story, he saw when he was young, this guy in town who's dressed like a shlom, and nevertheless, he's unusual. In other words, he doesn't, he doesn't fit the profile of a shlom. You know what I mean? He did hang around the poor people, but he didn't, his hanhuggers were not like the poor people. He conducted himself in a very refined fashion, as you can imagine. So, to the discerning mind of the young Israel Salanter, you had, you know, a guy that looks like Clark Kent, but you can tell he's not Clark Kent. And so the story is he stalked him, and he followed him around, and he saw him go off, as our hero did, from time to time to these small villages in the countryside and learn, uh, you know, and say over to Musabis pilots, you know what I'm saying? You know, whatever it is, say over these things, Bis pilots. And eventually, he was caught by him. But what he, the story is that he told the young Yisrael Salanter, he says, you should learn Musar. But it, obviously, it's not that phrase. You had to see the guy in action. And you had to go and just, you know, be the spall from what you're talking about. I read, um, where was it? Some time ago. Um, Ramosha Shapiro died. Said that he was young. It was the early 50s. He was in Bnei Brak. Kids. He was a kid. And he saw Dessler, Rob Dessler, who was the Mashkiach there, who had his own private Seder of learning in Yeshiva or something like that, maybe Friday afternoon. I'm going by memory. And the, he, Rabbi Moshe Shapiro says, he and a bunch of kids, you know, little kids, were watching through the window, maybe in Panovich, Basemanish, wherever it was, the Schultz. And Dessler was doing the Musser thing, you know. Yesoda, uh, Yesoda, this, uh, how's it go? You know, uh, 
you know, at the beginning of the Masilta Shah. Where Yisoda Chasiyas Vishoy Shavoda Tamimo, she is Barbis Ami Solmachavas Balomo. Again, Yisoda Chasiyas Vishoy Shavoda Hatamimo, who she is Barbis Ami Solmachavas Balomo. Again, Yisoda Vishoy Shavoda. Then he said in his tune, and the kids thought that it was weird. This is what Moshe Shabir said. They thought it was weird. It looked funny. They were laughing among themselves. But he did it again and again and again and again and again, like a thousands of times, again and again. And it freaked them out. And in the end, they were bawling. That's what he said. Bro- no, it, was, it got to them. You know what I'm saying? They got to them. So in other words, I guess he had to be there. But whoever was there must have been really something. And I'm sure that when he saw the, the young Yisrael's Han saw our hero, when he said, go learn Musser, it's after he had this, you know, dramatic encounter. And it's like, it just, you know, shattered him. And... Uh, and transformed him. And that's why for the rest of his life, he's always talking about what a big tzaddik he was and all the rest of it. He became a hero figure, and that's why he gets a biography in the beginning of the Tuna of Musa. But as you see, he had two periods in his life, what I call the Clark Kent period and one of the Superman period. And the Superman period was a lot harder because when you come out and you try to get involved in claw work, then you can't work just on yourself. You have to work with others. You have to work with others. You have to negotiate with others. And what do you do when they think you're not firm enough and this and that and the other? Um, it's it's quite an interesting thing to contemplate. Anyway, I've gone too long as it is. I want to thank once again our sponsors. Uh, Abe Glutton, and as I said, Neshama's parents should have an aliyah. Or each one should have its own aliyah. And uh, we're grateful and uh, we'll be continuous later in the week. And I hope in the future, maybe next time, to, to carry the story forward with the son-in-law or with Shmuel Salanter, you see, it's coming from a very interesting background. Here we're talking about the history of Eretz Yisrael, uh, Yushalayim, especially in the 19th century. <clears throat> the, the the good, the bad, and the ugly, or however, the, whatever the expression goes. Anyway, with that, I bid, with you a, bid you a good day. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com